This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Amen. Uh, well, my name's Ryan Paulson. If you're new with us, I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. If this is your first time, uh, just an extra special welcome to you. Thanks for, for joining us today. We're continuing in a series that we're calling The Movement as we explore all that Jesus continued to do and continues to do through his church. Uh, this, this series is centered on the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 4 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. You may or may not know that a few weeks ago, our church had a relatively large garage sale, um, and I did a little bit of shopping there. I was on my own. My wife didn't go with me, and so I was free to roam. And I came back with purchases that have had me nominated for the Father of the Year Award. Uh, I came home with three items. Uh, Two of them were um, these wooden recorders that my kids are absolutely loving to the glory of God and the um, annoyance of of their parents. And uh, the second thing I came home with was uh, a, a little wrist rocket slingshot. So if you... If you donated this to the garage sale, please know it's in good hands. I thought, you know what, every five-year-old boy needs a slingshot because we have a few too many squirrels in our backyard, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Our neighbors love us. I was thinking about this, though, as I, as I was reading this passage um, this week and studying it and, and trying to, to pray, Lord, Lord what, what sort of freshness that do you want us to see in your word as we study it this morning? And there was this word that stood out to me as I tried to put myself in the place of, of Peter and John. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll remember that that we started a few weeks ago in this story of Peter and John approaching the temple in Jerusalem to pray with other believers. And as they walked to this temple, they encountered this gate. It's a gate called Beautiful. It's made of Corinthian brass. It's massive. It's gorgeous. And at this gate is a man who can't walk, who's crippled, who's been like this for his whole life. He's 40 years old, at least when Peter and John get to him. And they say to him, uh, gold and silver we have not, but what we do have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And, and he does. And it's this beautiful picture of the gospel. Well, Peter, uh, unwilling to just let a good deed go unrecognized, begins to preach. And he says, this is the reason that God has done this is because the kingdom is now. Repent and know forgiveness of sin. No presence from the Lord, refreshing presence that comes from him. And know that he's restoring all things. Well, it turns out some people get sort of upset about this. And Peter, unwilling to just say, okay, we'll go and we will go back to our our little community and we're just going to stay there and we're going to hang tight. He says, no, you must know. You must know why the man standing in front of you as well. And what we see is Peter entering into this word that we're going to talk about this morning, tension. Tension. It's a word that we don't like a whole lot. 
I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where there was tension, you know you want to hit the evac button, the eject button on that as quickly as you can. Some of you live in families where there's a lot of tension, where you walk in the door coming home from work and you go, okay, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of tension here. Some of you go into a workplace that's just difficult, that's hard. There's tension there. Two sides are opposed to each other, and maybe better pictured, opposed to each other. I want to make a proposition to you this morning. I think a lot of times as followers of Jesus, and, and, and can we just be honest, the gospel presents some tension. I mean, we just sang about some of it. Oh, wretched man am I. I'm a sinner, yet, yet, I stand holy, spotless, blameless before the throne of God. He's redeemed me. There's tension there. There's tension there. We live in the, the kingdom and yet we're, we're citizens of another country. There's some tension there. And I think in the same way that we want to resolve relational tension, we also strive to resolve gospel tension. And oftentimes, our resolution of God-given, God-designed gospel tension actually frees us from the impact that God intends us to make. You see, here's the thing that happens with, with tension. Tension creates potential. Tension creates Oh, it went farther than I thought, yes. Tension creates the ability to make an impact. There it is, Tim, come on. Tension creates the ability to make a difference. Oh, see. Tension creates the ability to make a difference. Where'd that go? (laughs) It's unfortunate. In our world. And I think for a long time, for a long time, we've strived to resolve the tension that God invites us to live in. And it's this tension, this pulling between two polar opposite extremes that actually creates potential for impact. I want to invite you this morning, as uncomfortable as it is, and it is that, back into gospel tension. The tension that what Jesus has done for us and the impact that that has made and the way that it invites us to live in the world different and changed that creates some tension that I think for too long we've just sort of resolved. You know, some tensions aren't meant to be resolved. They're just meant to be acknowledged and lived in and managed as best we can. The main point I'd love for us to to focus on this morning is that preserving the tension is necessary to living in the kingdom. Preserving the tension is necessary to living in the kingdom as as much as we would love to resolve the tension, as much as we'd love to make everybody happy. That's simply not going to happen, and I want to propose to you this morning, nor should it, nor should it. Would you open, if you have a Bible, to Acts chapter 4, as we see Peter and John embrace this tension because it is, in fact, the potential for impact. 
Here's the way this account, this account, this event continues. Um, Dr. Luke is recording this for us. Um, he's gone to a bunch of different sources to get us the best that he can, the closest to what actually happened, and this is what he recounts. Remember, this is right after Peter gives this great sermon about the author of life's invitation to come home. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up, came upon them, greatly annoyed. Circle that in your Bible if you have that. Just, it's, there's not a lot of significance, it's just sort of fun. That Luke points out, um, they're, they're annoyed by Peter. So if you're annoyed by me, I'm in good company. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, now, just a quick time out. Notice what Peter does not say. They were not simply teaching that, Pete, that, that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. They were teaching that there are significant implications for every single person that walks the face of the earth. That Jesus walked out of the grave was a picture, was a foretaste, was a foreshadowing of what will happen for every single person. Some to judgment unto life, some to judgment unto death, but the resurrection, their teaching, <laughs> happens for everyone. Verse 3, and they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who'd heard the word believed, and the number of men just men, came to about 5,000. So we have these sort of marks along in the book of Acts. We have 120 gathered in an upper room, seeking God's face, praying, spirit descends. Then we have 3,000 at that point, believers. And now, presumably a few days later, this movement has grown to 5,000 men. That's a mega church. That's a mega church that's a nightmare, <laughs> They went from 120 to overnight, uh, essentially, a few thousand people. They don't have systems for this. They don't have an organization for this. And maybe God didn't intend for them to have that. <laughs> and what we see, we see this tension that, that Peter and John, in their preaching and in their exposition of what's happened in Jesus, they present to you and to I this tension that they're grounded in the present, yet they're anticipating the future. They're grounded in the present. They're saying this is the life that God has called us and invited us to live, but we will not lose sight of what's on the horizon What's on the horizon, in fact, is going to determine, is going to define, is going to paint in color the way that we're supposed to live today. But we're not supposed to resolve that tension. We're not supposed to resolve that tension and, and in, in many ways just say, okay, we're uncomfortable with the fact that we are both kingdom people, we're future-oriented people, and yet we're people who live in the now. Peter and John, they preach, they proclaim Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, and yet they're firmly planted in the life that God has invited them and called them to live. I think we resolve that tension far too easily. And the pendulum starts to swing, and either we're people who, who never think about the future, and the fact that one day, resurrection will take place for every single one of us. Or, or, 
we're all about it. And it robs us of the ability, the potential to make any sort of impact today. And so what God designed us for is tension and yet a resolution of it often makes it so that the impact God intends us to have doesn't happen. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it when he writes this. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Notice this tension. They're thinking of the next, yet they're making an impact on the present. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. The apostles themselves who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. See, he invites us to this tension. Not to just, as the angel commands the disciples early on in the book of Acts, not to just stare up at the sky, but to live with conviction that this world is not all that there is. Kingdom people live in this tension. They don't resolve it. They acknowledge it, they appreciate it, and they press into it. And it's this tension that sends them launched out into the world, Lauren, to make a difference. To make a difference. You should have brought your glove this morning. Well, the story continues. The story continues. Verse 5, it says, on the next day, so, so let's not just skip by it, though. Peter and John preaching Jesus are put in jail. This is going to be a theme throughout the book of Acts. People who preach Christ often find themselves behind bars. We haven't experienced that much in our culture, yet the day may come in our lives when we do. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anus the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And they had set them in the midst, and they inquired. So they're on trial. They're on trial. By what power or name did you do this? So, so this, this idea of a name is important to know in the first century. This is somebody's identity. This is the very core of who they are. And so the, the high priests and the people, they look at Peter and John and they go, there's some power behind what you're doing. Let, let's, what is it? Let's call it what it is. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being Examine today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So this is a drum he's beating, right? I mean, if you've been here over the last few weeks, it's, um, let me tell you about Jesus. By the way, you killed him and he's God. An invitation to come home is, is out. The welcome mat is out. But you need to know, before you step home, you stepped away. You killed the Son of God, the author of life, the Holy One. And every time Peter says that, my thought, my, my conviction is that he's praying, Lord, 
convict some, bring them home. Bring them home. I don't think he says that with just to, to sort of shove it in their faith. I think he's face. He says it seasoned with grace because repentance is still an option for them. He says, if we're being examined to give an account of a good deed, let it be known to all of you, the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He's inviting them. Hey, there's a movement that's taking place. What Jesus, what happened with Jesus at his resurrection is now having ripple effects into the world. The kingdom is breaking forth. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He paints this picture that that everything is being held together in Jesus, that everything that's happening is being built around Jesus, that if you were to take him out, you would take everything out. And he invites us into this tension. There's There's a lot of them there, but let me draw out one of them that I love and that makes my heart sing because I think if we as the church could capture this tension we might just set the world on fire. Here's the tension. In a good way, of course. Um, They are benevolent and loving, yet boldly evangelistic. They're benevolent and loving, yet boldly evangelistic. Typically, people are either or. They're either or, and what you see in Peter and John is um, absolutely, yes, we're going to, we are going to heal the sick, we're going to, the lame are going to walk, the blind are going to receive sight, absolutely, we're going to work for the good of every single person we encounter. And when you ask why, we're going to boldly declare the reason has a name, the power has a name. And his name is Jesus. And you see, typically what happens in in churches, in movements, is you start to have this either or. Either we're going to embrace this social gospel, and we're going to feed people, and we're going to clothe people, and we're going to work for the good of our city. And to that I say, yes and amen, we better if we're the church. But what you see is this pendulum that swings and instead of having this tension of, oh yeah, we're going to work for the good and we're going to tell you why, we just work for the good. And we never tell people why. Or we make our nice signs and we go and hold them on the corner. But nobody would ever put us on trial for a good deed. Isn't it interesting that Peter and John find themselves before the ruling council, the authority, the power holders of the day, and they're like, we want an explanation. Why and how did you heal this man? Hey, I have a dream. And it's that once again, the church would be put on trial for good deeds. The people might see our light and eventually glorify our Father in heaven, but in between seeing the light and glorifying God, there's a period of trial. There's a questioning, why? Why? 
When was the last time in, in your life, in our life as a church, when was the last time we were, we were put on trial? We were asked to give an account of why. I love the way that, that Peter puts this in one of his letters. He said this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the peoples, honorable, so that when they speak against you, um, not if they speak against you, notice, right? Uh, Not if hypothetically they were to ever say anything negative about you. No, so that when, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live such good lives that they would have nothing bad to say about you. I love it that when Peter and John are put on trial, they have this hearing with the ruling authorities of the day. They do not talk about morality. They don't talk about the oppression of the Caesar or the Sanhedrin. They don't talk about the corruption that's going on there. There's a lot of things that they could have talked about, but they talk about one thing, and that one thing's name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Yeah, there's a ton of things that are messed up in the world. And and, and hey, if we get this thing right, maybe everything else falls into place. So let's talk about Jesus. Let's keep the focus on him. Let's make his name great. If there's a battle we're going to fight, and there should be, it's about do people know the goodness and grace and holiness and mercy of Jesus? They're committed to it. They're unconcerned with what people think of them. Hey, if you want to put me in jail, do as you must. And, and just a quick time out, just a quick side. That's a radical difference from where Peter was a few weeks earlier when he lies to a little girl and says, I never knew Jesus. Little girl around a fire comes to him. Hey, Peter, aren't you one of the ones who follows the way of Christ? A little quote unquote servant girl asks me, no, not me. A few weeks later, hey, if you must put me in jail. But what I saw was he died on the cross, was buried in the grave and he walked out and it changed everything. And it changed everything. So, we are boldly evangelistic, yet passionately benevolent for the good of the people around us, for our city that we live in. So they're unconcerned with what people think of them, and yet, they're very concerned with what people think of Jesus. Is that boldly evangelistic and passionately benevolent? Is that a tension that you hold? Is that a tension you hold? Here he continues. He continues. He says, and, and so he just, this is, I love this qualifier. It's this sort of add on. You killed, you killed Jesus. He is God. He's the cornerstone. You rejected him. Everything's being built around him. And just in case you think there might be another cornerstone out there. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you circle that? Underline that in your Bible. No other name, no other person, no other power. Not there might be somewhere or, or there's potentially another, but, but Peter has this absoluteness in the saying. 
It's as though Peter looks back on the last few days, weeks, and he thinks, listen, if, if the father had to kill his own son in order to make a way, how terrible of a father would he be if he was one of many ways? If Jesus was one of the options, and there were many, the father is not loving. And the father does not care. If there's no other way, if this is the way it had to be, then we can look back at God and say, God, you're absolutely, you're merciful and you're loving and, and your justice and your mercy, they kiss at the cross in the person and work of Jesus. But if not, if he's one of many ways, you cannot trust God. You can't. And Peter is really clear, and so let me be just as clear if I can. Will you look up at me for just a second? The Bible is absolutely 100% clear on this. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. And I say that, and, and my heart jumps, because I know there's some of you in here, you, you don't believe that, and you're not on board with that. And what I want to invite you to is what we talked about last week, to repent, to turn, and to walk back to him, because the welcome mat is out. You haven't gone too far. And followers of Jesus, they hold in this tension that we are exclusive and, and hey, just, just by way of note, every religion is. Every religion's exclusive. Including those that claim they're not. Maybe especially those that claim they're not. Exclusive, yes. But also inclusive. Tim Keller says this, all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. I love that. It's as though you're waiting to get into a special club and it says members only. And instead of checking your ID at the door, the person hands you the pass. Come on in, you're welcome. Well, what's the requirement? Take the pass. The only thing you need to do is admit you don't deserve to get in the door. The only thing you need to do is admit your own merits don't get you access. But faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is, is what does. Putting our hope, putting our confidence in his work. And you see, you can boil every other religion down, and at the base of it, what you get is an invitation to work and to do. But when you boil Christianity down, what you get is an invitation to rest believing it is done. And that's the difference. Don't measure religions based on whether they're exclusive or not. Every religion is. Christianity, as Keller said, is the most inclusive. It's only through Jesus, and it's open to all. To all. Um, Jesus will say the same thing. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Not I am a way, a truth, and one of the lives. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, 
Peter and John, they continue. A lot more could be said about that really quickly. Let me reference um, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. He has a section in there on exclusivity that is, that is brilliant and readable and uh, conversation that I think you'll be in at some point if you embrace the previous point to be benevolent and loving yet boldly evangelistic. I, I highly recommend it. Here's the way that the account continues. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Now just a quick time out. Don't you wonder if Peter got a hold of this account after Luke wrote it and went, Really? <laughs> got to throw me under the bus like that? Uneducated and, and common? Couldn't Egypt said one or the other? The modifier really necessary? They were astonished, and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Now, now here's, in all the discussion about exclusivity and evangelism, this is what I long for people to say about my life. He's, he, he's been with Jesus. He's been with Jesus. It says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. It's just like, well, well if that's what we're on trial for, then yeah, you put us in jail if you must. Because we did it. Guilty. Guilty as charged. Here's what I love about this passage. Is it points out this tension. That the disciples, they are both with Jesus and they're in the world. And is it not our sort of gut instinct to resolve that tension? We're either going to create the holy Christian bubble and we're not going to talk to anybody who thinks differently than we do. We're scared, we're threatened, etc. And so we just retreat. The Christian bubble becomes our best friend. Or, or, we are so out there that there's absolutely no difference whatsoever between us and people who don't follow Jesus. And what I love about Peter, of John, Peter and John is that they embrace this tension. People are going to know we've been with the living Christ. Because his DNA is going to be on us. And we're going to be around them. Hey, you know, the, you know the best way for people to know that you've been around Jesus? You know the best way? You might want to write this down. Is to be around Jesus. I mean, don't we, we love lists, got to do this, got to do that. Gotta, people will always know the things that you've been around. They're the things that you talk about. They're the things that you're passionate about. They're the things that you bleed over. They know the things you've been around, the things that are important to you. If you want people to say this about you, then you've got to spend time with him. You've got to know him. You've got to press deeper than just that five minutes a day to say, God, would you let your heart rub off on mine so that people might know I've been around the living Christ. Please. I sort of liken it to going to Subway for lunch. I, I, I don't mind a Subway sandwich. I just mind going to get one because I start to smell like Subway. I get back to my desk and I'm working. And I'm like, what happened to me? What happened to me? And, and, and the rest of the day, I smell of Subway. I'm sorry if I've met with you after I've been, but I think that people should think the same about us and our Lord. That we should be around him in such a way that the aroma of Christ gets on us. And then eventually starts to get on them. Verse 15. 
It says, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? Don't you love that? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. We'd love to, but we can't. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Don't you love that? You can tell us not to to speak of it. You can even throw us in jail. Um, I love the tension of we disagree with you, but we're going to respect your leadership. Throw us in jail if you might, must. But we can't help. We're we're redeemed. Peter's like, just a few weeks ago, I denied you three times, and yet I'm still called to be a disciple. I can't help. Can't help. Lord, grip our hearts in that way, please. He goes on, verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, see, see people, um, power structures always threaten. They always try to use the power that's at hand to get what they want. This is not the way of Jesus. And they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in it. Notice this this tension that Peter and John live in, this confidence, we will boldly speak the name of Jesus. And yet they come back and they fall on their faces. God, you're in charge. It's all about you. You are sovereign. It's everything is in your hand. And followers of Jesus who engage the world and live in it in a way where they make an impact, they preserve this tension. They're confident, yet they're dependent. They're bold in the way that they speak, yet in the closet, they're on their face before God, saying, God, I need you. And if we aren't bold, we probably aren't on our face. And if we are bold without being on our face, we're probably really hard to be around. Because it's this, it's this meshing, it's this tension that invites us to be kingdom people. We know we can't, we know he can, and we're going to engage. We're going to engage. We're both conf- confident, yet we are dependent. And let me very quickly, as an almost side note, point out, Peter and John, they do the speaking, they go before the, the, the prevailing of powers and authorities before the courts, and they say, listen, there's one name, it's only his name, and while they're doing that, there's people that are back at the home base praying. They're the senders, essentially. And we see these two sort of pieces in the body of Christ. So if you're an introvert, um, here's your sort of in. Okay? That not everybody's called to stand up here and preach in this way. 
We're all called to be proclaimers of the good news that grips our heart in the way that Peter and John were. We can't help. We can't help. But you do that in a lot of different ways, South. Not just through the words that you speak on a platform or the way that you share with your neighbor or at your school, but there's a hundred different ways. There's not just one part. There's not just one thing this looks like. Your role may be like the people who are waiting back to say, great job. Keep going. We're with you. We're praying for you. If it comes to jail, we're going with you. We're in this together. But our roles are different. But our roles are different. But both are confident and yet dependent. Closing, the account says this. So they pray, Sovereign Lord, you made everything, earth and sea and everything in them. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. So he invites, Peter invites them into, hey, this is what happened. David talked about it. This is no big surprise. The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, and along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand, God, your hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. That's their prayer. Not, please let the persecution subside, but, but God, allow us to push forward with boldness. Your message is way too important to retreat over a little bit of opposition. And while you stretch out your hand to heal, Signs and wonders are performed through your name, the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they'd prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. With boldness. See, here's what this tension involves the final one. They are threatened. <laughs> yet they continue to be aggressive. A little bit of opposition, they're going, that's not gonna derail us. The message is too important. A little pushback, we expected that, and we're gonna continue to pray like Paul prays at the end of Ephesians, not that he might be released from jail, but that he might continue to preach and herald the good news of the gospel boldly to whomever might come into his path. This tension. We're invited to live in friends. We're invited to live in this tension of being grounded in the present yet anticipating the future. Being benevolent and loving yet boldly evangelistic. To being inclusive and exclusive. To being confident but dependent and to being threatened, but aggressive, not towards people. Notice, notice, this isn't, we're gonna go after the powers and the authorities and the structures. This is, we're gonna go after hearts because Jesus is the only way and he's open to all who would come to him. Friends, I pray that we would be followers of Jesus who don't resolve the tension 
but who resolve to live in it because in the tension is where our impact lies. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer together? This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.